Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley and have been working with CRNAs for over 23 years and I'm married to one and my co-host is Sharon Pierce. She's a practicing CRNA for 20 plus years, a past president of the ANA and the NCANA and held many other leadership roles. In fact, most of our listeners know who Sharon is. And our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs. And Sharon, I think we have a wonderful show put together for people today. Well, of course we do. We always have a wonderful show, Jeremy. Absolutely. And our special guest today is Mike McKinnon. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike McKinnon. I'm from Arizona, past president of the Arizona Association of Nurse Anesthetists. I've been involved with uh, lecturing all over the country since after I was a student. Yeah, and Mike is well known on Facebook and has put a lot of information out there on our topic today. And we're going to be talking about understanding the risks associated with anesthesiologist assistance. So a little bit of a mouthful, but I think a very timely topic in spite of the environment that we're in. Take it away, Mike. So I think that, you know, there's definitely a concern across the entire profession about AAs. People think about it all the time. We talk about it all the time. And there's definitely a concerted effort from our colleagues from the American Society of Anesthesiologists to bring AAs into every state across the country. And they've even said that in their meeting that they're planning to support every state that wants AAs. And of course, the question for CRNAs is what does that mean for us as a profession? Where does that leave a CRNA if all of a sudden AAs then come into your state? And a lot of what happens is you look at the other states which have brought in AAs and people get concerned that there's going to be a loss of jobs, there's going to be a change in practice, maybe they're going to get paid less for what they do, or they're not going to be able to work in their home state because there isn't a job for them. And I think that's the major concern among CRNAs nationally. I think the priority is that you know we have to look at this not as a negative thing that competitors come. Competition is good. Competition is good for healthcare. It's good for business. But we have to understand: is it really competitive, or is there an anti-competitive bent to this? Is it a political action, or is it about access to care? And I think that's kind of where the focus is for CRNAs. Well, let's back up for just one minute for people that may be listening to our podcast who don't really understand anesthesiologist assistants versus nurse anesthetists, CRNAs. Give us a little thumbnail sketch of the differences between the two providers. Sure, that's a great question. So everyone probably listening understands a certified registered nurse anesthetist is someone that's a previously an RN, has some sort of critical care experience, minimum of one year prior to that where they learn what sick is and how to assess patients and then uh, transition into a master's or now doctor programs in many cases to become a CRNA and you can work independently or with uh, in an anesthesia care team which may or may not be independent depending upon the practice anywhere in every state in the country. There's about 48,000 to 50,000 CRNAs out there. AAs are a little different. 
AAs come with no prior healthcare experience. Their requirement is simply to have had a bachelor's degree. They do have some requirement of certain courses, although it's a little different across each program, but most of them are the pre-medical classes, so biology, chemistry, that kind of stuff. Where CRNAs in some programs are required to take the GRE, the AAs may take the MCAT or the GRE, but there's no minimum score required for entry into a program. They have to have a shadowing experience previous to that, but the shadowing experience could consist of just following another AA or a CRNA or a physician anesthesiologist around the hospital for one day, and that meets the requirement. So Shadow for one day? It can be one day. There's no number of wow. hours that are required per their credentialing association for shadow time. And in fairness, there's no number of hours required for us to shadow a CRNA. There's no basic minimum. Individual schools may choose to require more more hours, but they don't have a basic requirement from their uh, CAAHP, I think is who credentials them. Well, so uh, you're saying that me, who was a business major in college, I could go back and be an AA? You absolutely could. So um, one particular AA. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just We're put that out there. I don't think that's going to be a good thing. So one particular AA uh, who I've, I've developed a bit of a relationship was prior to going to do his undergrad, a Bachelor of Science, was a bartender, which may or may Well, not hey, what's the difference in <laughs> yeah, some respects? It's right. You know, anesthesia by Budweiser. So um, he had been a bartender prior to that. He's a young fella. He went back, did a science degree, and learned about this AA thing, applied and got accepted. Wow. So there's no requirement to have a background in healthcare. Or ever having touched a patient. No, that's right. So with an AA, as an example, like a CRNA comes, you know a 12-lead EKG, you know what the squiggly lines on the screen means, you know how to put an IV, you know what an IV is, you know how to, you know, where the leads go, you know how to interpret sick, you know about disease process and medicine, they come with none of that. So in a CRNA program that may range from 27 to 36 months, you learn anesthesia. In an AA program, you learn all that with the same length of time plus anesthesia, right? Wow. Hence the assistant portion, I think, and the reason why they're more of a dependent provider right. because they don't come with that experience. We're trying to teach them what an IV is instead of how to do anesthesia for the first portion of their program. Which is the reason they're dependent upon That's the anesthesiologist or MD in that right. scenario. Is they're because there to fill in the blanks. Yeah. Well, I do know whenever legislation was first introduced uh, to credential AAs in North Carolina. The president called it the Anesthesiologist Job Protection Act. <laughs> <laughs> Which is absolutely accurate. Accurate. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's funny. I do a lot of presentations talking about this kind of stuff and dealing with the pay side and so forth. And if you break the numbers down, which, Mike, I'm sure you have, mm-hmm. I mean, this is not the lowest cost provider type of scenario, is it? I mean, no, it's a great question. I mean, if we're looking at healthcare as a in the bigger picture, we're trying to bend the cost care curve. Right. We're trying to lower costs, but provide the same high quality service and in fact provide better access to that same high quality service. So the question is how do we do that in anesthesia? Because we're a small sliver. And the answer is CRNAs, right? You know, CRNAs are independent providers and we can practice in any model, anywhere, and we're gonna do it in a cost conscious way that makes everybody happy and allows that provision to occur. The other answer are physician anesthesiologists. They can work in any practice environment. They can provide the same level of quality care with the same outcomes anywhere in the country, in every state, in every county, in every small rural hospital, if they so choose to work there. The problem is they do not bend the cost curve. Their cost is much higher, right? Just because I'm a CRNA doesn't mean I work for cheap. Cheap is the wrong word to talk about CRNAs. The answer is, 
I'm willing to do it in a cost-conscious way. So when I bid out contracts, I'm looking at ways to be partners with the facility, not to get as much out of them as I can. It's right. a different focus. So I think you just hit one of the, the hot points right there. Anesthesiologists can basically do everything we need them to do. Absolutely. So can CRNAs. But the problem is, and, and what I see in this, is the fact that if that anesthesiologist has got to sit at the head of the bed and give anesthesia, they've got to do it for less in order to be competitive with CRNAs. Is that the crux of the problem? Oh, it's absolutely accurate. And a good example is the constant discussion from the ASA about expanding uh, the Rural Access to Healthcare Act and critical access facilities uh, that are pass-through facilities, right? They've been trying for years and years to get on that pass-through train. Well, I own a contract where we have a rural pass-through hospital. And I can tell you that I'm reasonably sure that there's no physician anesthesiologist in the country that would live in a teeny small town that doesn't even have a Walmart for two hundred thousand dollars a year which is what our crna gets paid to provide anesthesia care three days a week and that's a critical access rule pass now if they want to do it for that i'd open up the act but i'm sure that that's not going to happen so i don't see the benefit and to go back to your previous question about aas and are aas the most cost effective there's three models right effectively there's three standard models out there there's the anesthesia care team that i think most of our listeners are probably really well aware of a one up to four medical direction model where they must meet the tefra guidelines and they're billing basically 50 percent of each of the four cases the physician anesthesiologist is that allows the physician anesthesiologist to make 200 percent of what they would if they sat the cases themselves i get it i would do the same thing well it sounds mm-hmm. like a great yeah. deal if i can make 200 yeah. percent i'd do it as well yeah i don't blame them right but when you look at it from a cost perspective, uh, you know, cost analysis perspective, you're asking people to pay for two highly qualified independent providers to do one job. And that's not acceptable in our healthcare arena today. It's just not going to work. It's just unsustainable. It can't be sustained. That's perfect well, for it. you know, there was a, the director of nursing. This was an education at Duke University. And I'm trying to think of her title. Her son was an anesthesiologist, but she wrote an article that said, would you pay two mechanics to fix your car? That's right. And her son was an anesthesiologist. This article went out. It was an editorial. We didn't even know it was coming out, but it made a lot of waves. It was in 2010. I was new region director. That's totally accurate. And that's what happens, right? And no one would agree that paying two mechanics to fix one car makes any sense at all. Now, when you think about AAs, they can only work in that model. They're limited to that maximum one to four medical direction model. And because of that, you're paying two mechanics every single time to take care of one car. Right. So AAs are limited to that. Now, CRNAs can work in a collaborative model where there might be a physician anesthesiologist and 25 CRNAs. And everyone works together. It's not a political situation. It's apolitical for the patient. Well, let's talk about the buzzword of access, how anesthesiologist assistants do nothing to relieve the access problem. That's absolutely correct. I mean, if, if you look at this one-to-four model, it's prevalent in large urban areas um, with large population centers, too. So when you look at access, we're not talking about people who live next door to a hospital. We're talking about rural areas, we're talking about underserved populations, we're talking about indigent care, all these places where A, there's not a lot of money, B, there's not a lot of amazing opportunities in the area for your husband or wife to live in and enjoy in small rural towns like where I work. And then in addition to that, you've got a situation where they have a struggle to bring in providers of any kind. 
right? Well, AAs can't work in those environments because we can't afford to have them there with a physician anesthesiologist for every one. You know, we have three hospitals and three surgery centers with a new one being built. And if I had to bring in a physician anesthesiologist to our practice to work in medical direction, our hospital would close. It would be a $3 million cost to our facility to provide the same service we provide now for nothing. Wow. You know, that's significant. So from an access perspective, mm -hmm. they do not solve the problem. They're not a solution. CRNAs are the solution to access. And physician anesthesiologists, if they want to move to rural areas. Well, we're a solution to a healthcare problem in general, not exactly. just to access, but exactly. we are a solution to healthcare. We've got all these problems and everybody keeps talking about the problems and we are part of the solution. Like you know, one of the other things that I think we need to pay attention to and talk about is, is there a difference in the quality of care? I mean, have there been studies done, anything out there that's been put out sure. about an AA versus an AA model with anesthesiologists versus CRNA independently? So as it stands today, we can't say that AAs are less safe. Let's start there, right? Okay. It's disingenuous for us to suggest just because they're educated differently, they're less safe than we are. That's the same argument the ASA would use against CRNAs. Absolutely. So we certainly can't make that claim, and it's just not true. What has been done is there's been a number of things that have been looked at. One is uh, the Ohio study that was done at Case Western University, which wasn't actually a study, but it was an internal review. And they actually had the largest end value, the largest cohort they looked at, which is about 20,000 of each provider under medical direction of a physician anesthesiologist. Now, initially, from the outset, you think, well, geez, that's huge. That is a large study. It sounds great. And they found no difference in outcomes, right, between the CRNAs and the physician anesthesiologists. The, the CRNAs and the AAs, both medically directed by physician anesthesiologists. The problem is it was an internal review. There was no actual data. We weren't allowed to look at it, and you can't see if there's any methodology problems. That's one problem, because it wasn't released. It was never published. But the second problem is they didn't control for things that matter. And this is where it gets dicey talking about safety and benefit and comparing because if the physician anesthesiologist is in the AA room every single time everything is going on, but the CRNA effectively works independently in an anesthesia care team, then are we the same? And the answer is no. Well, we don't have a control for that in the study, so the study becomes invalid. Right? Uh, the second study that was done was Kentucky. And it was the state of Kentucky that were actually, when they were looking at AAs, whether or not they thought there would be, is there a safety risk of AAs? And their conclusion was, is there was no data available to make a determination as to whether or not AAs were safe or unsafe compared to other providers. And the way, of course, our detractors would spin that is that there's no study showing that we're not the same, right? right. So, which I get it, that's smart politics, but the reality is, you know, there's no conclusion. The most recent study was done in 2018, and that study was done by the ASA, and they looked at 421,000 cases, and it was CRNAs versus AAs, and it was a retrospective review of the data. So you have to recognize right there, there's a limited amount of information you get from retrospective reviews, right? You're never going to know about who's in the room when or any of that stuff. So here's the key, though. You know, after doing a doctorate myself and learning about research, it turns out that out of, those, out of that total number of cases, 5% of them were AAs, representing 20,000 of the cases out of the 450,000 total cases. Hmm. You can't make statements of that much smaller value when you're comparing them to CRNAs. Uh, the other part of that study that came out is that when they did the look at how involved the physician anesthesiologist is, they made no conclusions because they couldn't tell from the retrospective data. So again, you have no idea. What if I put 
AAs in every room with an 18-year-old healthy patient getting a colonoscopy, but I put CRNAs in the room with the 85-year-old military vet who has multiple coexisting diseases and medications and is getting a VATS, and he's got one foot in a banana peel and one in the grave, and the risk is high, yep. right? Those are not the same, and we can't compare that case to this case. This is just we're equal, but that is what this study did because they didn't control for physician involvement. They didn't also control for need to rescue, and need to rescue is a, is a key in medicine of how often someone needs someone to come in in a situation. You mean when seconds count? Yeah, when seconds count. And that you're five right. minutes down the hall. That's right. That is exactly <laughs> true, right? And that's the ASA's plan on that. But when seconds count, they couldn't figure out when they were in the room or how often anyone needed to be rescued. So if you don't know how often someone needs to be rescued, how can you compare these two providers and suggest they're the same? So low data, bad data, you know, not enough numbers, not enough M value, no indication of physician anesthesiologist involvement, no indication of how they assign cases to individual providers, and they even had data where CRNA only practice was in there. So how is that even possible? Because they didn't exclude it. And then there was collaborative data where there were CRNAs who worked in a collaborative model with one physician and said maybe there was 20 of them. But they didn't separate all that out. So by not doing that, it makes the study invalid. Gotcha. Well, you know, I'd also heard that there were some AAs in Georgia, and I'm not asking you to, to kind of talk about this, but we're, we're working without supervision. You know, at this point, that's not something that they can do. I know that there has been some talk about that with AAs, but does that also lend itself to Medicare fraud? That's an excellent question. So the key to Medicare fraud is, is if you're billing for an AA, if you're a physician anesthesiologist, you have up to four CRNAs and we're doing a medical direction practice. There are requirements Medicare has set in motion that a physician anesthesiologist must meet. They're called the seven TEFRA guidelines. And if you don't meet those seven TEFRA rules, you're committing Medicare fraud by default, right? Medicare fraud is like the speed limit. It doesn't matter whether you didn't see it. If you're going 20 over, you get a ticket, right? The ignorance is not a defense in the eyes of the law. And so when a physician anesthesiologist works in one of these medical directing practice, they must meet these requirements to get paid 50% of each case up to four cases. To make 200%, I would do whatever it took. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the reality is the risk for Medicare fraud becomes a real deal. And there was a study done at my alma mater, Thomas Jefferson University, which is a very tight, restrictive medical direction, one to two, and they're really upset when it's a one to three model, right? Where they found that 35% of the time in a one to, th a one to two model, they didn't meet what they termed critical points in the case, which almost totally correlate with TEFRA rules, right? And they build medical direction, so I know that that's what they're doing. When it went to one to three, it was 99% of the time they couldn't be there for critical portions of the case. Wow. Those incidents represent, in my opinion, Medicare fraud. So if you look at the anesthesia care team as a whole, the only real way to make it viable, and that study is called the Epstein study, done by a physician anesthesiologist at Thomas Jefferson University. And um, you know, the only way to make the Medicare the one to four medical direction model viable is a one to one medical direction, which is clearly not possible. So when you look at that perspective, Medicare fraud is likely happening in every anesthesia care team practice across the country every day. It's a function of people reporting it. So how many AAs do we currently have in the country? I know at one point we had some difficulty nailing down numbers. And how many schools are there currently in the country? So the most recent number of AAs in the country I could get, I got it directly from their association, is about 2,000 practicing. Really? There's still not an incredible number of them. They're graduating somewhere around 230 AA students per year. 
So it's not a large you know, volume they're putting out today. They currently have 17 schools. So, uh, and most of those schools aren't independent schools, they're satellite schools of a larger program. In this case, Western has two or three of them. That's how they do it, uh, which is totally acceptable. And there's no requirements to open a program to be in a medical school or anything like that. So they can open a program anywhere, in any state, regardless if AAs work in that state. So their right. AAs can then, as students, you know, work in your facility where you don't have AAs, as long as the law is allowed and the hospital allows it to happen, and those AAs get in there, and that's a part of a political strategy to move AAs in the state, because then you bring little Bobby back in front of the legislature and say, look, my name's little Bobby, I grew up here my whole life, my whole family's here, and all I want to do is come back home, but those mean nurses won't let me. Right. right. So that's that exactly what it's they a smart did in North Carolina. Absolutely, yeah. it is. Yeah. I get it. I mean, that's that's how you work legislatures is through constituents. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting as we kind of think through the AA model. To me, when you look at AAs from a financial perspective, it really doesn't make sense. When you look at it from a numbers perspective, it really doesn't make sense. But AAs have been around for a long time. I mean, they, they didn't just arrive on the scene in the last five or ten years, First right? The program was 1969. So 1969. So well, that was a big year. That's when PAs were born, too. Yeah, it was right at the same time. PAs, belly of the beast, Duke University. Yeah. You know, as I, again, as I think through this, they've been around for a long time. They're not. You know, so, so what is the drive at this point? I mean, seriously, lay it out there. Of what, what is all this about? Well, let me start by saying AAs aren't bad people. Right? right, they're just people trying to make a living like everyone else. We shouldn't certainly demonize individuals because it's just not accurate. Right, they're just trying to do a job. Right, they're nice people. They got families. They're working. They are pawns in a bigger game. And so, to answer your question, you know, the drive is to limit the power of competition. That's what the drive effectively is. Yeah. So, the ASA as a group is a trade organization just like ours, and their primary goal is to protect their members. And by protecting their members, they protect their income. These things are totally intertwined, right. right? They're totally intertwined. And to protect their income, they want to limit competition. Now, that's not fair. And they're never going to say, hey, we like to avoid competition. That doesn't come out ever. Right. But that's what it is, right? So you'll see the ASA in states with CRNAs. They're trying to stop bills that expand access to care, which the translation of that is if I want to work to my full scope of practice, they don't want me to do that because if I can, the hospital down the road might employ me and not them in their model. And that way they don't make money from me, right? So how are we going to stop CRNAs? Because APRNs, we're on a train and things are moving down the track faster than they ever have in my career and probably sharing. Absolutely. You know, things are changing rapidly. I mean, bills are happening. We're getting things passed that we would never have thought would have happened. Nurse practitioners across the country are gaining wins everywhere as well. And so legislatures are looking at it now. We finally hit a tipping point where cost is mattering. And I think that's what's helping push us along. The outcomes are the same. There's no debate about that. The question is, how much money are you willing to spend for the Cadillac uh, extra expensive model that sits in the lounge? That's the question, right? Well, with AAs, they help increase that longevity of that model mm. of when making 200%, right? Because in the physician anesthesiologist only practice of which are becoming a dinosaur, they're going away rapidly. In Arizona, one of the large, second largest one in the country was called Valley Anesthesia, and they had over 300 physician anesthesiologists only at one point. Well, they want to sell their practice, so guess what they did? They couldn't sell it. No one would buy. And they wouldn't buy because it was a top-heavy, expensive model. So they, they eventually sold the share of anesthesia only because they turned it into an anesthesia care team. Mm. But that also protects the physician anesthesiologist's wages because they're still involved one to four. Right? So it is political. The end gotcha. answer is the answer is money. What was the question? 
And the answer in this case is political, too. Well, money and power. And power, absolutely. You brought up another really good point regarding AAs, and they are good people. I've never worked with any, but they are just out there trying to make a living, and I understand that. And my question would be, wouldn't you think they'd want to be CRNAs, and how could we possibly make that happen? Well, you know, Sharon, that's a phenomenal question. And I've interacted with many AAs over the years. And the ones that specifically message me on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is, they're looking for pathways to get out of where they are. And the reason they're looking for that is because they're being told by the physician anesthesiologist, oh, you're the same as a CRNA. In fact, you're better because you trained under the medical model. And, you know, they're, they're telling them these things. But then they turn around, the CRNA that's working next to them on Monday, Wednesday is working at another hospital or plastic surgery office making three times the amount. Right. Well, for the same, why can't I have that opportunity as well? And if I was an AA, I'd be asking the same question. That's a relevant, salient question, right? Because it's about them and their professional future. So one of the things that had been talked about within the ANA and a large task force was commissioned two years, three years ago to, to look at it. Is it three now? Which under Cheryl Nemo. What could possibly be done to bridge an AA to become a CRNA and give them the extra training that they're missing for independent practice practitioner versus dependent, but also the opportunity to expand their career, right? So we already have a group of people who are trained in anesthesia. We just need to add the icing to the cake. Make them a nurse. And teach them how to be independent and make them a nurse. You know, give them that additional lacking quality that we have as CRNAs versus them. A license. And a license. That also helps, right? So why would they want that? Well, they want to make more money. They don't want to only live in 17 states. Multiple ones have husbands or wives who are military, so they could get transferred any time to a state where they can't practice. It's a big concern for two of the people I talked to. Primary reason why they want to do a bridge program to become CRNAs. And others just want to be able to move They want to go home or they want to go to other places. They don't want to be trapped in this one practice. Because it's not only just a state, but only certain practices in a state allow for AAs. So you can only live in this city. You can only live over here. Wow. So I think one of the the greatest things that's been talked about, and I I hope to see it come to fruition, is the AA to CRNA bridge program and a pathway for them to become CRNAs. Because they would be great CRNAs. Well, if the anesthesiologists would have been smart, they would have made a bridge program for CRNAs to be anesthesiologists. You would but, think, right? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. it would certainly be a topic of conversation. Let's hone in on one other thing that we talked. you talked about. You were talking about pay. And I do hear from CRNAs some angst because they perceive it being problematic that AAs make the same thing as CRNAs in their facilities. Now, I've always contended that was a good thing because if anesthesiologists can employ AAs and they can keep more money in their pocket, then that would be the way they go. So as long as there's parity in salaries, I see that we will rise to the top in that regard. Would you care to comment? I, I think that's totally accurate. I think it's protective for CRNAs that AAs who work within the same practice are paid the same. Because let's be honest, if I'm a businessman and I can employ two people to do what I perceive is the same job, I'm going to take the one who's going to take less money. That would be bad for CRNAs, right? right. And, so, and I also think there's some legal issues around paying the same provider differently. But in the bigger picture, depending on your state, but in the bigger picture, yes, everywhere where AAs practice with CRNAs, the pay is the same and it doesn't change. 
What some CRNAs are concerned about, which may happen over time, has much more relationship to supply and demand in the area. Because if, if AAs can only work in X hospital, so they have all the AAs applying there because they can't work in the other eight hospitals mm-hmm. in, the, in the town, then the supply is high, but the demand is less and salaries or benefits may go down. But that's not because of AAs, those are related to market forces. So it, it's, salary doesn't decrease because AAs exist. In fact, they stay the same. Well, I do know when we were having the legislation about AAs in North Carolina, and some of this was brought up, that they can only work in certain places. The anesthesiologists told the legislators in North Carolina, well, the CRNAs can just move. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. What do you say to the average CRNA out there who says, you know what, I don't have AAs here. Um, I've never worked with an AA. Why should I concern myself with this at all? Because it doesn't affect me. Yeah, it's a good question. I think, I think uh, you know, currently I go all over the country and lecture on AAs and talk about, this is part of the very issue, one of the topics that I discuss, and it's because CRNAs feel safe and insulated in their, in their practice, right? You know, right. well, you know, everyone loves me, all the physicians respect me, we get along great, we go to each other's birthday parties, they'd never do that to me. Right. Right? And the reality is, is look, if it's going to be me or you, it's going to be you. So the relationships within the hospital, <laughs> yeah. it's just true. Well, that's the reason it's, why the anesthesiologists, right. I don't blame them for their I fight. I get it. I get it. I, get it. I do it too. I do the same thing if I was there. I get it. Yeah. So their their perspective is, is, well, you know, CRNAs are passing bills everywhere. Oh, my God, they opted out in another state. Oh, my God, they got full practice authority. What are we going to do either to stop or in response or to slow this movement? And the answer is we're going to bring in AAs. Because every AA is one less potential AA member who's paying dues, who's supporting our PAC, who works in that hospital and is visible to the staff and sees how good CRNAs really are, right? That's replacing that. And in practices where AAs come in, CRNA practice gets more restricted so that AAs and CRNAs look the same, right? That is intentional. So when people are in states that don't have AAs, and I'm in Arizona, we don't have AAs. But here I am doing all this stuff on AAs. It's, it's, you know, I think I'll take the immortal words of George W. Bush. If we fight them over there, we don't have to fight them over here. Oh. So every CRNA should support CRNAs in states that have AAs or are going through AA battles so that there's less states that turn into AA states and they have less to worry about. We need to stay on top of these things. Think forward, you know, 10 years, what's it going to look like? And that involves getting involved now. Whether there's AAs in your state or not is not relevant because it's still a battle in our profession, for our profession. Well, it becomes a slippery slope. I mean, we answered these same questions when AANA is putting a lot of resources into pain management, yet less than, what, 1% of our members actually do pain management. But if you let go of one piece then another piece will follow yeah. then another piece Every will follow state that gets AAs makes the next state easier yeah and that's a reality and you, we were talking beforehand and you mentioned New Mexico you want to kind of elaborate on what what happened there yeah so uh, in the University of New Mexico uh, AAs came into that state were only allowed to work in that facility in fact the university right and um, when they came in and I, I want to say this is about 2003 there was one AA that took a job there right so, okay, one AA, no big deal. It's a department of 30, 40 plus people. Is it really going to matter? Well, here we are, fast forward to 2019, and there are 41 AAs and one CRNA working there. So, 
when AAs come into your state and there's a political motivation to replace CRNAs with AAs, because there's no benefit as we discussed. So if there's a political motivation, that will happen and that will displace CRNAs. So that's Albuquerque, right? They're the biggest, biggest cities in, in New Mexico. And so these are the kind of things that happen. When politics is the goal, the money doesn't matter to the people who are trying to push the politics. Right. And even though, and the access, right? Even though they don't provide more access, they don't change anything, they don't make anything better, none of that happens, they don't decrease costs, it doesn't matter because instead of allowing CRNAs to work in an autonomous practice where there might be one physician for 10 of them, they went the other way to protect that fiefdom effectively. Well, it's always politically motivated. I know whenever we first got the opt-out, we knew that this was coming down the pike because ASA said every state that gets the opt-out we're going to start pushing AAs. Yep. Yeah. And in fact they do say that. It's written down. It's in one of my slides. (laughs) (laughs) Well they told you what they were going to do right? (laughs) Just be prepared. There you have it. Mike this has been great. Anything else you would like to get across to our listeners before we wrap this up? You know I think the things that I can get across to listeners in general about our profession is you have to support your state association, get involved. That doesn't mean every Wednesday night you have to do something, but it means go to them and say, what can I do to help you? Maybe that's, you have a personal relationship with a legislator that, hey, yeah, John lives right next to me and this bill coming up, John's going to be voting on in that committee. These things matter. Donate to your PAC. Donate to the ANA PAC because ultimately money does not buy us wins. That's a fallacy. You know, people say about government all the time, but what it does is kick the door open to get us in there for them to listen to our story. And if we never get the door kicked open for them to listen, they don't care. Our story doesn't get told, but the other, the narrative is made for us by our opposition. And so I encourage CRNAs to be members of the ANA, their state association, donate to their PAC, donate to the foundation. The foundation is what provides evidence that shows that we're, that our practice is safe, equal, cost-effective, uh, with great high-quality outcomes, because no one's going to do that research for us. No one cares but us. So we have to take ownership in our own profession, or we don't win. Right. Well, as an AANA past president, I've got to tell you, I really appreciate the message that you just gave us there. And I kind of look at your relationship with your professional organization almost like a marriage. I may not like some of the things that is coming from my organization, but I need to stay married to them. I've been married for 36 years, and for sure, Pierce has said things or done things that I didn't necessarily approve of or like, but I stayed married to him for now. (laughs) But, you know, the professional organization has the member's best interest at heart. It's our only advocate. Absolutely. So I really appreciate that message. And Sharon, I've heard you say that uh, many, many times. If we're not telling our story... Somebody else is telling it for you. Your narrative. Exactly. That's right. Well, I think that's a wrap. Mike, thank you so much for being here today. We've been trying to get this one off the ground. I'm glad it worked out here at Mid-Year Assembly. He's a busy and, uh, man. He's very busy traveling around. and got a lot going on. But we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mask with Jeremy Stanley. Jaron Pierce. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our other episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time. It's a wrap. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and everywhere else that streams podcasts. 
Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support.